the Duke and Duchess. This would be Will and his wife. Uh, as a matter of fact, they, this will be their second child. In 2013, they gave birth to Prince George Alexander Lewis, His Royal Highness Prince George of Cambridge. That's his name. Just in case you were wondering, it's a lengthy name nonetheless. People Magazine during that season in 2013 had a, a baby bump journal. And this was uh, the journal that Kate actually kept, Kate Middleton, uh, during her season. Uh, now, what I'm amazed by is with this new baby, they have baby bump watch. That's what's going on in 2014. I mean, the tabloids are actually watching as Kate walks around. They take pictures of her from angles to see how the new royal baby is progressing. This one apparently a daughter. With, with the fanfare of royalty, that's how the children of kings are supposed to be brought into the world. In our modern day, it's being followed by the paparazzi and having your growth as a pregnant woman tracked online, measured in many places. Um, This is the type of celebration that normally would accompany the arrival of royalty. And yet, what a contrast. What a contrast with how Jesus, the King of Kings, comes into the world. What a contrast, and it is by design It is God's ultimate design that in all that Jesus would do and all that Jesus would demonstrate and all that Jesus was to us that we would see the character of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so his humble arrival in the world in a manger on a long family trip is just one way that we see something really exciting about the character of God and the kingdom of God in general. I love the Christmas narratives we've celebrated all through Advent. They talk about different journeys. This past Sunday's message, we looked at the, the, the Magi's journey, the journey of opportunity they had, where they journeyed from Baghdad to Bethlehem uh, to present Jesus with gifts in response to what they knew was God telling them to go see this king. The gifts they gave him were gold, a symbol of Jesus' kingship on earth. And frank incense, which is, frankincense is just an incense if you didn't know it, but it's a symbol of deity. And myrrh, an embalming oil, which would be a symbol of death. These gifts were brought on the journey of opportunity presented to the Magi. Tonight, I want to look at another journey, two in fact. The first is Mary and Joseph's journey of obedience This is their journey, as we see in Luke chapter 2, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. It was to obey not only the Lord, but the civil government that Joseph strikes out. And he makes his way to his family's hometown to register for this particular census. You see in Joseph a very well-learned lesson You see, in another Christmas narrative, you would have read of Joseph having an encounter with the Lord where he was told by the angel of the Lord to marry his fiancée who was pregnant and not by him. And he obeyed. He had this encounter and did what the angel told him and pledged and stayed with Mary and continued on in spite of the, maybe the social pressure or what others may have been saying behind his back. Obedience to the call of God wasn't an option because Joseph's experience with the father was 100% legit. 
See, what we see in people who genuinely follow Christ is a genuine encounter with Christ. The genuine encounter with Christ produces, in the end, someone who will actually obey. And Mary and Joseph took a long journey, 80 miles to be specific, 80 miles pregnant. Now, I don't want to embarrass her, but Stephanie Terry's here tonight, and she's due next month. Can, when you get a chance to see this lovely woman uh, uh, after the service today, you'll imagine her hopping on a donkey and, then, and, and going 80 miles. If you need a visual, that's what we're looking at. Mary, it would have taken a week, and, and they traveled this journey, and why would they do such a thing? Why would they inconvenience themselves in such a way? Clearly, there's a way around a rule. There's a loophole they can uh, take advantage of. Not so with Joseph. When he encountered God for real, when he knew that God was not something that he was taught growing up or a product of the culture he was involved with, when, when Joseph experienced the living God and by virtue of the birth of his stepson, Jesus, experienced the Savior, obedience was not anything he even considered not doing. So he traveled a very long road with a very pregnant fiance. Obedience to God is inevitable if you're a genuine Christian. If, like me, you fight it, <laughs> you will for a while, but let me assure you, you won't be the first Christian to tap out God. Now, if you've ever seen one of these mixed martial arts fights, now, I'm not a huge fan of the MMA, but what normally will happen is one of the grapplers, one of the mixed martial artists inside the fenced octagon will get another, the competitor they're, they're fighting in a hold that will almost be, it will be so painful that the only option that the person whose arm is in this, what's called an arm bar or a twist is to signal with their hand, to tap out and say, okay, I'm done, you win. Not long ago at UFC 48, two fighters, Frank Mirror and Tim Sylvia, were fighting. And Tim Sylvia is a big, tough guy. He was a former champion. And he got in an arm bar, and he was so stubborn, he would not tap out. And I don't mean to freak you out on your Christmas Eve, but Frank Mirror broke his forearm. That's how stubborn he was. He was like, I will let you snap my arm before I give in. Well, this is something we see actually in the Old Testament with Jacob, who is the father of the nation of Israel. In fact, his name was Israel. There's an encounter that Jacob has where he does not want to submit to the Lord's will, and the scriptures describe him wrestling with God and not willing to give. And God puts his finger and breaks Joseph's hip so that for the rest of his life, Joseph walked with a limp. And this is indicative of what happens when God loves us enough to make sure that we will follow him. It's easy for you and I to look at Joseph's and Mary's lives from the perspective of 2,000 years and go, oh, sure, get on the donkey. Don't you understand? Something cool's really going to happen. There's going to be a star, and magi are going to come from the east and present you with gold and frankincense and myrrh, and it's all going to get written down, and for 2,000 years, people are going to get together on this night and light candles and celebrate your son's birth. We think they would have all that in their head, but they didn't. They, like us, when faced with trusting God, are clinging to faith. They are clinging to, this is really difficult. 
But my encounter with God is so genuine and so real. What choice do I have? And now we think, we look back at their lives and we say, what would they have missed out on if they'd said, you know what? I know the law says that we're supposed to go and register in Bethlehem, but you're pregnant and, you know, we'll do it another time. Or, you know what, let's send a, a proxy. They'd find, look what they would have missed out on. One more affirmation for them that the road they were getting ready to walk was designed and ordained by God for their benefit. You and I are faced virtually every day with an opportunity to trust that God is orchestrating the events of our lives, that when he commands us to do things or commands us not to do things, that he really is looking out for us. And I know for sure from my foolish experiences in life that most of the really awful bad things that have happened to me have been because I ignored the counsel of God. I ignored what God had to say about things. And either very actively or God passively saying, I'm going to let you experience the consequences of your actions because God loved me as his child. He disciplined me. This is what the scriptures say in Hebrews 12. It's also mentioned in my New York Times least seller book, Three Taps for Campus Survival. I want you to know I did not have to hire a PR firm to get on that list either. That is all me right there. Seriously, uh, I, I said to students for many, many a year, I said, you got two things that are going to happen when you walk away from obedience to God. You're either going to find out that you're his child because he's going to discipline you or you're going to find out that you're not his child because he isn't going to. And neither of those things is anything any of us want to find out. It's much better to trust him and obey. Now, why does God call us to obedience? Well, it's for the same reason that Jesus would be born in a manger it's for the same reason that he wouldn't have the fanfare of royal baby number two from the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. It's so that we could see in him the character of God. After marveling at Michelangelo's statue of David, the Pope asked the sculptor, how do you know what to cut away? And Michelangelo replied, it's simple. I just remove everything that doesn't look like David. And this is what's going on for the Christian. The process of becoming more like Jesus, the process of obedience, is not just God having his way. He certainly will have that, but there is an end he is after, which is that through our character, our trust in him, we would see his goodness and others would see his glory in the way we act. He is the center of the world, not us. He wants to be seen through us and so all of those changes, all of that pain, all of the difficulty you may be encountering in your life, as we all do, it is a design of God to get you and I to walk with and trust him and reflect his character more and more so that people will see him. And this is the beauty of Mary and Joseph's journey of obedience. There was a third Christmas journey in addition to the Magi, in addition to Mary and Joseph, the third Christmas journey, friends, was Jesus' journey of humble obedience. It was Jesus' journey 
from his seat in glory into a humble stable in Bethlehem. Imagine somebody leaving the throne of grace to come and save people who weren't all that interested in him in the first place. One of the movies of my young high school, college age that was really big was a movie called Coming to America. It doesn't receive my pastoral endorsement, so don't go rent it and go, the pastor said this was a great Christian movie. Um, Because you're going to be seriously disappointed. It's not appropriate for the children. But the theme of the movie was not all that dissimilar to other movies you've seen. And that is you've got this guy who was forced into an arranged marriage and he wanted to find true love. And so he posed as a normal person from a poor neighborhood in Queens, New York, so that somebody would fall in love with him for who he was. And in the end, he does find true love. And then it is into the amazement of the woman who's found him attractive as a person. He also happens to be a royal. See, Jesus has come to us in that same way. He has forsaken what was his. He has forsaken any of the joys and any of the rights and any of the privileges and comforts that he would have had. And while you may think a lot of this earth compared to eternal glory and the presence of God, this earth is a landfill. It's still the best thing we've ever had. It's still glorious and reflecting the glory of God, but imagine perfection. Jesus willingly walks into the sin, to the broken to the struggle of this world. He willingly walks into it for you and for me, and his journey is one to demonstrate to us what it really means for him to love us, the humility it takes for him to give up and sacrifice that which was his right to demonstrate his love for others. The apostle Paul wrote of it like this in Philippians chapter two. He said, in your relationships with one another, Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I love the end of this verse. It it reflects once again the idea that every person on this earth will submit one way or another. Everyone will bow the knee. You may see people in your world somebody who you think is angry at God and, or dismissive of his existence or just crazy hating the notion of an eternal God who would have any right or claim on the people that he had created. Even the person who's the most antagonistic towards God one day will bow their knee and submit and profess with their mouth, yes, Jesus Christ is Lord. What Paul is after here in Philippians 2 is that our relationships must reflect what characterize Jesus' coming to us in Christmas. He's saying at the beginning of this passage, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus, which is to say, 
I'm going to give up what's best and easiest for me, and I'm going to do what is best for you. I'm going to humble myself and become like a servant, which means in a big house, in a mansion, certainly in his eternal desk, in his internal place, in his eternal throne room, Jesus had angels that just waited on him hand and foot. All he did was have servants. All he does is have servants and has every right to walk anywhere he would go and say, you will serve me. Bow down, kiss my ring. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus takes the very nature of a servant and humbles himself. And we, in our relationships, are supposed to to characterize or to reflect this glory, the glory of his humility, the glory of his servanthood, the glory of Jesus's journey of obedience. Now, what do you mean? What do I mean by that? Well, when Jesus came to earth, it was in obedience to the will of his father. He and the father collectively know the wisdom it would require, the sacrifice it would require. Jesus obeys the father's call to be a sacrificial lamb for us, a perfect sacrifice of sufficient provision. Jesus obeys the Father. His journey in coming to earth is not just to demonstrate the glory of his character, but to fulfill a mission. And that would be to be substituted for you and me so that our sins wouldn't need to be punished. A perfect sacrifice. That's why he had to be perfectly obedient. Jesus could not have been sacrificed for our sins if he himself were a sinner. It wouldn't make any sense. In order for him to be exchanged for us, his sin, for his holiness, for our sin, in order for our sins to be satisfied, the the wrath of those sins to, to be pacified, to be taken away, or the expiation of our sins, or as even Brooks prayed earlier, the word propitiation, which is to, to take out all of that would, which would be required for a just punishment of sins, that all of that took place because Jesus was willing to be obedient. He was a perfect sacrifice. But the other part of Jesus' obedience was that he obeyed the Father's law to be a saving Lord for us. What I mean by that is that he was a provision of salvation He obeyed perfectly, and you and I were given credit for his holiness. I love a passage in 2 Corinthians 5 that the Apostle Paul also penned. He said this, If anyone's in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Listen to this not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. So here we are, ready to implore people as ambassadors of Christ. Be reconciled to God. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus' obedience clears the way for his followers to enter into an eternal relationship with him. This isn't a free pass to heaven. What it is is you begin a relationship with him now and it will continue for eternity. And once you die, if you're not in a relationship with him, 
you will continue in isolation from him for eternity. We choose by his grace eternal life with him or in the absence of that grace, we choose to be separated from him. And how we know if we're in relationship with him is whether or not our life is characterized by a growing desire to love him, a love that is expressed through obedience. And his call to obey him is so that he can take you and I to new heights of experience with him and trust so that he can be seen in you and me and others may glorify him by watching us love each other well and serve each other well. And they'll say in that, wow, look at the character of Christ. I see it in those Christians. C.S. Lewis wrote this in Mere Christianity. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. See, when he called the Magi, the Magi, when he called Mary and Joseph, and when he calls you and I to obedience, it's so that we can experience him in ways that we, up to this point, haven't been willing to. But if we'll ask him, Lord, give us grace to trust you, to follow you, We'll be able to know the joy of walking with him in a way that has previously not been our experience. We get the privilege of learning to trust and obey, learning to journey with him as did these people before us, experiencing that God isn't just trying to get you to behave, he's actually walking along with you, seeing his character developed in you and in me. My prayer this Christmas Eve is that you and I, like the people in our Christmas narratives, would know and experience a grace and a joy of God caring enough about us to pursue us, to descend and condescend from his throne and pursue you, that he loved you enough to birth you in a place where you could hear the gospel, to grow you in a place or have friends or family introduce you to that gospel, that he has entered into your life not all that dissimilar to how he entered into the life of the Magi or into the life of Joseph and Mary. He has gone out of his way to get your attention and he's saying, won't you journey to discover me anew? Let us pray that in 2015, that would be the case for us. 
Father, thanks again for the evening to celebrate the birth of your son. Thanks for the call of obedience that isn't just so that you can have your way, but that you can do something in us that is remarkable. Lord, would you bless us in this next year with a newfound capacity in response to your grace to trust you and to follow you, to love you, and to obey you. Father, may you be glorified in Jesus' name.